Our God and our Father, we come to you this morning. Again, we're reminded we come to you through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We come because of the Holy Spirit's work of illumination that has caused us to be convicted of our sins and convinced we were in need of redemption. And then you, Holy Spirit, granted us what we needed by opening our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus, forgiving our sins and regenerating our souls. We thank you, Lord God, for our salvation. We thank you for your word, which is what guides us and gives us direction in this life. We thank you for the gospel, the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray today as we begin our study in the gospel of Mark, we would, we would be shaped by the truths that we hear and see and observe and become a, really a participant of as we go through this journey with Mark through the gospel. God, I pray that you would show us again how to take the truths of this revelation and apply it to our souls and cause us to be bold in our declaration of it as we carry it out from this building into this world you have commissioned us to go into. Lord, we thank you for each saint that is here today. We pray for those who are yet to believe. We pray that you would grant saving faith today. We pray that you would grant repentance, forgiveness, confession, and obedience today in the heart of everyone here. We pray that you would do this for the glory of your namesake and the good of your people. And we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. As we look at the Gospel of Mark, it's a little bit like a little glimpse into the news about what was happening in the day that Mark lived and the day that the Lord Jesus walked this earth. And it wasn't a day of good news. It's kind of like the day that we live in. It was a day there was a lot of bad news. Whenever you turn on the TV, what do you see today? Typically, you see bad news. I hate to watch the news, actually, personally. I actually despise broadcast news um, because no matter what channel I turn to, the news is always the same. It's bad. Our world is filled with bad news. We constantly hear reports, don't we, of our failing economy. We hear reports about corrupt religious leaders. We hear reports about children and women that are abused. We hear reports about greedy politicians. The content of our news today is generally bad. And again, that's the way it was, I believe, in Mark's day also. Times were bad in Mark's day. The the news all around Israel was bad news. It was bad news because the voice of God, God's word, had been drowned out by corrupt religious leaders, ritualism, and Roman domination. But there was good news in the midst of that darkness. God had something to say. He had something to say to His hurting people. So God does what He always does when He sees the needs of His people. He sends someone to proclaim the good news. He sent a preacher. God spoke through the preaching of His messenger, John the Baptizer. God ordained that good news would come to His people through His messenger. And His messenger would proclaim His divine word. And that really hasn't changed. You and I are messengers of this holy God who sends good news to us through the work of His Son. And that good news is contained in His word. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So if you would, turn with me in God's word to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 8. 
There are four things there. We're going to look at two that I want to focus on this morning, two next week. And we're going to be looking at the first five verses in particular, but I want to read the first eight to have the context. So hear God speak to us this morning from the Gospel of Mark. Mark 1, 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In this passage, Mark tells us that the good news that John proclaimed or John preached or carusoed, heralded, was number one, prophetic, number two, it was powerful, number three, it was plain, and number four, it was primarily about Jesus Christ our Lord. We're going to only look at two of those this morning. Mark tells us that the good news comes to God's people, number one, prophetically, to point to God's Messiah. It comes prophetically to point to God's anointed one, the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's in verses one through three. And Mark also tells us that the good news comes to God's people, number two, powerfully, with authority, with boldness, I would say exegetically explaining God's Word powerfully to point to God's mercy. God's mercy is contained in His Word. His Word reveals what He is like, and that is what John came to preach in verses 4-5. through He came to preach the Word that came to him from God. He was the voice, a voice, not the voice. The voice would be Jesus. He would be the ultimate preacher. John was just a voice that would point to the ultimate preacher. What you'll learn as we go through the Gospel of Mark is, God emphasizes the effectiveness and the necessity of preaching to praise His name, to praise His Son, and to effect change in His people. The good news, the euangelion, the gospel, comes to God's people, number one, here in Mark, prophetically. It comes prophetically to point to God's Messiah. And I would say this, it also comes prophetically to prepare man internally. You know, when we hear the revelation of something God had prophesied about in the Old Testament, then we see it come to fruition in the New Testament, that changes us internally. It changes our direction, our our thinking. We begin to be emboldened by the words that we see here revealed to us in Scripture. And we also have great faith instilled in our hearts about the promises that are yet to be fulfilled. So this prophetic message would point us in Mark to God's anointed Messiah. Look what it says in verse 1. We've covered this a couple times already, but I want to read through it. 
and just point out a couple of things as I read it. Verse 1 says, the beginning of the good news. The beginning of the good news, and the good news had a subject, had an object. That would be Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Talks about His humanity and His deity. The good news is about Jesus. Jesus is the substance of the good news. If you don't get Jesus right, you have no good news. That's what Mark is saying. He does this immediately at the beginning of his his gospel. Then he says, to back this up, I'm I'm showing the Romans because they revere authority and power. So I tell them up front, this guy you're talking about, the guy that I'm confessing to you, this guy is God the Son. That caught the Romans' attention. But he can't forget that there are Jews in his midst who also need to be confronted and convinced. And so he says, oh yeah, just so you know, as it is written in verse 2, in Isaiah, which Isaiah was considered the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. His name is preeminent here. It's, it's up front. There's actually two prophecies going on here, one out of Malachi 3.1, one, one out of Isaiah 40 and verse 3. The first one is actually from Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger. Now, so you know who this is, the messenger is John. We'll learn that in a few moments. I send my messenger, it's God's appointed herald. The one who would go before the king and and declare that the king is coming, the king is coming. Make ready the hearts, level the roads, straighten out the crooked areas of your life. You need to receive this king. And when he comes, I'm going to shout to you that he has arrived. That's what John does also. But the messenger here is John. I send my messenger before your face. This is an inter-Trinitarian conversation. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son here. Before your face, we'd be talking about Jesus. Who will prepare your way, Jesus' way, into the world. And then in verse 3 it says, John, this messenger is marked out by this. This is how you know him. This comes from Isaiah 40 in verse 3. It says, he is the one who has the voice. This is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's John the baptizer. He's crying this. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now, what's interesting in Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says, prepare the way of God. Make his path straight. So this is affirming the deity of Jesus because that is who this voice is crying out about. John the Baptist is going to make the way, prepare the way, and cry out in the wilderness that the Messiah, God's anointed Savior, has come. Mark tells us that the good news was about God's promised or prophesied Savior, Jesus. This news was progressively revealed throughout God's Word. Turn with me to Genesis 3.15, just so you can see this. Genesis 3.15, it's progressive revelation. Old Testament is progressive. We get larger glimpses of God's plan as you move historically in time through the Old Testament. And here was the first glimpse into God's eternal plan. There is no plan B. This is plan A. This is the plan God has ordained before the foundation of the world. That He would send a Redeemer. And that Redeemer would come. He would come to man. He would come to be the man's substitute. And He would redeem the man and crush our enemy. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He's speaking to Satan. He, the offspring of the woman, that would be the offspring of this woman that would be prophesied throughout the Old Testament, knowing that it's going to come through the virgin birth, eventually in Isaiah's testimony, is coming through this woman 
that this offspring would show up and he would bruise your head or crush the head of Satan and you will bruise his heel. He will be harmed by sin, by Satan in the sense that he will be the one who becomes our substitute and dies in our place upon the cross of Calvary because of sin. Now, Isaiah, let's go ahead and look at these passages in Isaiah. Isaiah 40. This is more of the progressive revelation that Mark has in his mind about the one that was promised to come. The good news was about the promised Messiah. This is just a quote that was brought into the passage here in Mark, but Isaiah 40 and verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now go over to Isaiah 53. It doesn't get any clearer than Isaiah 53. In God's progressive plan of salvation, His progressive revelation about His promised Redeemer, that He would send one to become like us and to receive our punishments for us. This is the one that was prophetically spoken of throughout this Old Testament revelation. And Mark is saying that John proclaimed that that one that's talked about here has arrived. He's here. Are you ready? This is the one to whom we look here. Isaiah 53.1 Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed or the salvation of God been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we would look at him and no beauty that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now we know as we continue through this passage that this one that's spoken of here is the Messiah, Jesus. And he is the one who will bear the transgression of many. For the glory of God. And that's revealed throughout Scripture. This is the one that's promised to come. Now, Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet here, Malachi, go to Matthew and make a left, okay? Go to Matthew and make a left. Malachi 3 1. This Old Testament prophet, he declares, even within 400 years or so of John's arrival, that John is coming, and John is coming to tell you about the one who will purify his people from their sin even when he comes in his first incarnation and when he comes in his second incarnation in the sense of his second coming, the second advent. In Malachi 3, 1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, that's John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me, that's Christ. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, that is Christ. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when Christ appears, when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will set as a refiner and purifier of silver, and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. What what Malachi has done here, he has combined two prophecies at the same time together. One of the first advent of Jesus' incarnation and also the second advent when he comes to reign in authority and purify everything. But this is a progressive revelation and we see it being brought to us in the person and work of Christ, but we see it proclaimed through this messenger that God had appointed. See, God, God brings revelation through his ordained means, preaching, proclamation. The prophecies, go back with me to Mark, the prophecies 
We're to prepare God's people. That's why the prophecies come. Prophecies still are important to do that for us today. They prepare us. They prepare us for the second coming of Christ. Do they not? They make us anticipate, long for, and actively live for the second coming of Christ in obedience. That's what it was going to do here in Mark's day when John preached. In verses 2 and 3, Mark tells us that the messenger has come to proclaim that God's promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus, was near and His people must prepare their hearts to receive their King. You know what's interesting about this passage? When it says in verse 3 in that prophecy, prepare the way of the Lord, there is no taking Jesus as a Savior without receiving Him as who He really is, as Lord and Master. John is very clear. If you know that your master is coming, you need to be prepared. This is the one with whom you have to do. This is the one who knows your very thoughts and intentions that are in your heart. So verse 3 tells us that this messenger would do something to prepare the people of God. He would immerse them in God's Word. Immerse is the other, another word we use for immerse is baptize. He would baptize the people of God in God's Word, and He would clear away, it says, clear away all the obstacles, all the sinful obstacles that was in Israel's way. He would clear away by preaching God's Word. He would clear away self-righteousness. He would clear away ritualism. He would clear away everything that they had piled up in front of them in place of faith in God's promises. He would clear away the Judaistic traditions that they trusted in. And turn their eyes back to God's promised salvation that comes through Messiah Jesus alone, by faith alone, through God's revelation of grace alone. Mark tells us that the voice of God, which is basically the messenger, the voice of God's word is proclaiming that he would clear away false hope. He would clear away crookedness in the heart. God's word does that today, just as well as it did in Mark's day. God's messenger stands before you, preaches the revelation of God, the Word of God, so that it would clear away any false hopes that you have in your heart, so that it would straighten out the sinful bent of your heart by exposing you to the one with whom you have to do. God's Word still does that, just as it did there. I think this is just important that we understand the preeminence of preaching in God's economy. Preaching is not a dialogue. God doesn't need our input. It's a monologue. He speaks to those who are really not worthy of speaking back to Him. And when He speaks, it straightens out what is wrong with them. It exposes our crookedness. And that's really what He's saying about when He's going to make make ready this path. He's going to straighten it out. The king's messenger, Harold, would go ahead. He would actually have the roads leveled. So when the king came, it would be smooth. It would be easy access to the people. And so this messenger is coming to smooth out the road. He's coming to prepare them. You need to repent of your sins that are blocking the Messiah from coming. Coming to you in particular. He's coming. But is He coming to you? If you do not repent, He's not coming to you. If you do not repent, there is no forgiveness of your sins. And He is not coming to be your Savior. He'll come to be your judge. Mark's telling us that the voice of God's Word will clear away what blocks us from walking in God's will. 
Because the good news that comes from God is, number two, powerful. God's Word, God's revelation, the very voice of God, the very Word of God, the theonoustos, the God-breathed Word that came from divine inspiration, is powerful. It's powerfully pointing us to God's mercy, our need of God's mercy in particular, and our responsibility. You see, when you see what we need, we need is God's mercy. We need God's forgiveness. We don't need ritualism. We don't need tradition. We need salvation that comes from God. Then we also see there's a responsibility on our side to respond to His revelation. That's what John preaches. He preaches powerfully about God's mercy, the need of God's mercy in Israel who had been hardened by their traditionalism, hardened by their ritualism. And then he demands something. Biblical preaching demands transformation. Because God says, you and I demand, demand basically His correction because of our sin. Therefore, His Word comes to us, and it demands a response from all of us from the inside out. And John comes to proclaim that kind of message in verse 4. John appeared. It's interesting that it says he just appeared. There wasn't anyone preceding John. There wasn't anyone saying that, you know, this messenger's coming. No, the messenger shows up on the scene in, in a sense miraculously with no Judaistic authority, with no Pharisaical endorsement. He shows up like the Old Testament prophet and he stands in the wilderness and he declares Israel is like the Gentiles. They need to repent. And they need to be immersed in God's Word. They need to respond to His Word. And they need to be baptized and be prepared for the one who is coming for the forgiveness of their sins. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 4 tells us that John powerfully preached about Israel's need of God's mercy. You realize they didn't think they needed mercy. We are sons of Abraham. You remember the confrontation with Jesus as we read through the Gospels? They declared that they were the sons of Abraham, that they had never been basically in bondage. And Jesus says, basically, you're in bondage now, but you're not really even the sons of Abraham. You're the sons of the devil. You need faith, you need repentance. You need forgiveness. You need God's mercy, which you don't deserve. John proclaimed a message about repentance to the nation Israel. He was exposing their sin. He was pointing them to God's forgiveness and God's provision. And that was the greatest act of mercy that he could bring to them. See, when somebody confronts you in your sin, that's God's mercy. When they use God's word to confront you in your sin, that is the mercy of God coming to you. We need that. Because sometimes we can become hardened in our sin, hardened in our conscience. And we sometimes need someone to proclaim, or Caruso, Harold, you are in need of mercy. You are in sin. You are enslaved to debauchery. Repent and turn to God's grace, His Messiah. John did this through preaching. The word preaching, proclamation, herald, it's the word caruso. Listen, I want you to understand something because we live in a a time that preaching is played down. We live in a time that people want to basically stand up here and say, let's have a dialogue, let's have a conversation. 
Listen, this, this wasn't an emergent, ambiguous dialogue. This was a proclamation from a holy and righteous God coming through his messengers. That's the way it's described in verse 3. Verse 3 describes John's preaching as this monologue from God. It was the very vox day, the very voice of God coming through his messenger. The verbum day, the word of God through the messenger of God. Proclaiming, speaking through this messenger, proclaiming God's word and man's need of mercy. It wasn't man's reasoning. Preaching is not man's reasoning. Preaching is exegeting God's word. Explaining the words of God. And that, that is a monologue. God's word doesn't need to be debated, doesn't need to be dialogued about. It needs to be affirmed and it needs to be obeyed. It needs to be responded to. John illustrates biblical preaching. He was delivering God's word. And when he did so, it was, note this, it was authoritative. It was commanding. It was bold. It was unwavering. And it was merciful. Go with me to Luke to see that. When John preached, this is what it looked like. Luke 3, 2. If a man of God stood before you and said, I I want to talk to you about your problems. Can you tell me what you think your answers are? Let me me hear from you what you think we ought to do about your problems. I'd love to help you if I could. I don't think I would really want to stay with that guy very long. If he couldn't come to me and say, I hear you telling me about your problems. Could I tell you what God says? I'm not going to hesitate to tell you this. God's word says this authoritatively. And I trust it. I think you need to obey it. And I think I need to walk with you as you go through it. And that's mercy. I don't need somebody to be just sympathetic. I need somebody to come to me with an answer and command, saying, look to God. All that you need for life and godliness is found in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that or not? You know, people come to you and they say to you, well, I've tried everything. Have you tried memorizing Scripture? To deal with your issues? Have you tried burying God's word down deep in your heart so that you may not sin against him? Seems like that's what the psalmist thought would work. Do we believe in the verbum day, the word of God, or do we believe in our manipulation? You know, there's, a, there's an idea in the emergent movement, which if you don't know what that is, that's fine. Your ignorance is bliss. But in that movement, there's a, what they call a hermeneutic of humility, where they would stand before you and read a text and say, but you know, I wasn't there. I don't really know what this means. It could mean this. It could mean that. But, you know, I would never dare say that it actually means cut and dry, black and white, this absolute truth. Well, that is no hermeneutic at all. That is, that is not an art and science of interpretation. That is man's manipulation. That is, man trying to handle the Word of God in a way that he thinks intellectually that it would be beneficial to others, that it might be smooth sounding to others. But that's not the way God's messengers have ever worked, including Jesus. How do you like it when Jesus is confronting the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders of Israel, and he says, you're a brood of vipers. That's not real seeker-sensitive or pleasing, but it is merciful. He's calling for their repentance. He's calling for them to see their twisting of God's law, their 
twisting of these rituals into a works-based salvation as error. He's trying to cause them to see that, cause them to repent, and that's mercy. That's what John does here. In Luke 3, 2, it says, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. Notice it is the word of God. The word, the message he preached out in the desert was a revelation from God. It was something he was trained in as a child, but it was also something that he received by God's divine illumination and inspiration. It came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he sent into all the region around Jordan proclaiming a baptism or immersion of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, this is how the messenger preached. He was the voice, it says, of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So he's implying there something's not straight in Israel. Something's wrong. It's confrontational here. He says, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He's saying, you need to not only recognize your sin... And turn from it, you need to fill it. You need to fill it with something else. You need to level it by turning to God as your source of filling and salvation. And he said in verse 7, he said, Therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. Notice the subtlety in John the Baptist preaching. You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he says to them something very important. Now you're hearing about the one who is coming. Now you better obey this command. You better obey this revelation. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You say you're out here to turn away from your sin. You say you're out here to turn away from your ritualism. You better prove it by turning from it. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, So they were trusting in Abraham. They were trusting in being children of Abraham that they would inherit the kingdom because of that. He says, For I tell you, God's able from these stones to make or to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's cast out. If there is no fruit of the faith of Abraham, there is no root in Abraham. That's his point. Listen, as Christians, that's also true. If we profess faith in Christ, and there is no fruit that bears witness to Christ, there is no evidence that you are in Him, in the vine at all. I'm not saying it's perfection, I'm not saying it's constant, but there better be fruit bearing, even if it's small and sometimes inconsistent. But if you are in Christ, it's His Spirit and His Word that is flowing through you, both to work and to do God's good pleasure John appeared powerfully. Go back with me to John. Or I'm sorry, to to Mark. John appeared powerfully. It says, proclaiming a baptism of repentance in verse 4. Now, that's an interesting phrase. You need to understand something about this. We're going to talk about it a little bit exegetically in a moment. But baptism, first of all, wasn't a new idea in Israel. The Israelites, the Jewish people, were acquainted with the baptism of Gentile proselytes, the people who would be converted and brought into Judaism. But understand this, John's baptism 
his baptism rite was different. It was controversial and it was confrontational to Israel. John's baptism was calling for Jews to be baptized. That was shocking to their culture, to their mindset. But he was saying this out of God's mercy because they had become ritualistically hardened by their traditions. He said this to them. He called them to be baptized because God was requiring the sons of Abraham to repent of their ritualism, their human work salvation, and believe or trust in God's revelation so they could receive the Messiah, not as a king necessarily, but as the king who is Lord and Savior. They like the idea of a Messiah politically, and he's saying that's not what he's coming to do. He's not coming to fix your theocratic system. He is coming to fix the broken hearts of his people. They needed to be forgiven of legalism and disobedience, just like the Gentiles. And that was a radical revelation to the Jews. That was offensive. Just so you know, when you share the gospel with people in our culture, it's It's probably just as offensive when you call upon people who go to church every week for them to repent and believe in the gospel and not in their church attendance. Not in their decisional regeneration or their baptismal regeneration, but in Christ's work alone. One of the faults and sadness, I guess, sadness of our society here in the Bible Belt is when you come to someone and you begin to talk to them and ask them if they believe upon Jesus Christ, if they know the Lord Jesus as their master and savior, they say, yes, I go to church over there. What? Are you basing your salvation on your church attendance, your obedience? Are you basing it on the finished work of Jesus? Now, we should be in attendance. We should be in fellowship. I'm not saying that. But typically, the answer you get today when you ask someone If they know who Jesus is, they say, yes, I go to church. God's not counting your church attendance. He's counting to see if you're righteous. Are you righteous? I'm not righteous. Not on my own. I have to have an imputed righteousness that comes from Christ alone. John was telling them that they needed to recognize their sin within, and they needed to repent of it internally and testify to it externally. Repentance is the word metanoia in the Greek. Metanoia is an interesting word. And again, it's been played down in our Christian culture here today. In the last hundred years, repentance has been redefined. Repentance has been stated that, you know, if you're confronted with your sin, all you have to do is acknowledge it mentally that you are a sinner. Then you ask Jesus into your heart and now you're saved. That is not repentance. That is not salvation either. Salvation can't be reduced to a formula. It comes to the work of Jesus Christ. It's imparted to us, imputed to us by the grace of a sovereign God. It's not something we decide to do. It's something He has granted us to do. Metanoia means a change or to turn, but a change, a revolution, a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of attitude in the New Testament. What that means is this. Repentance is... A change of heart, emotion. We see our sin, we see our disobedience, we see our offenses against God and His law and His Son, and our heart despises our sin emotionally. We have a new relationship with sin. We see it as what offended God. 
and crucified Christ. So we have a hatred, a change of heart. The very sins that you used to hide in your back pocket, the very sins you used to entertain as being okay as an unbeliever, you now hate those sins. You despise those things that marked you out and identified you in your life before Christ. And repentance goes on beyond the change of heart and emotion. It also goes on and changes the mind, the will. It changes the will. Now that you see what your sin did and you see the offenses that you have committed against God, now you see the glory of His Word, the glory of His law, the holiness that's represented in the Ten Commandments itself. And you see that and you love it, though you still fall short of it. You love it because it represents the God who redeemed you from it, from the curse of the law. So your will is changed. Now you love God. You love His Word. You love His rebuke. You love His conviction. You love His direction. You love His church. Repentance also means not only a change of heart and emotion and mind and will, it also means a change of your attitude or your actions. This is where it really becomes important for us today. Repentance is more than just a change of the mind and the will, or the will and the heart, rather, but it's also an active obedience. It is turning, once you recognize the sin that offended God, that crucified Christ, recognize that you had broken His law and you want to long to fulfill His law and walk in His law, now it means you want to turn away from the things that marked you out as a sinner, the things that dominated you in your unbelief. You want to turn away from sin and turn in faith to God. Turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in His work and follow His command. Again, there is no receiving Jesus as Savior unless you recognize Him as Lord. You can tell me you're a Christian all day long, but if you do not submit to His Lordship, you are sharing a lie with me. If you're not willing to repent of your sins as a result of the forgiveness that He's granted you, there is no evidence of saving faith. Now, I want you to understand something about repentance. Repentance is, according to Scripture... Man's responsibility. This is where it gets sticky, okay? It's man's responsibility, and yet the Bible is also clear that it has to be granted sovereignly. This would be what we would call an apparent paradox. It's a sovereign gift. Repentance is something that God has wrought in the heart, yet we are responsible whether we are equipped by the Spirit of God or not, to repent. That's why the unbeliever is guilty in his sins when he does not repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look what Acts 11 says. Acts 11, 13 through 18. Acts 11, 13 through 18 states this. And the reason I bring this up from 13 is a little bit of context here. What I want you to see in this context is this. God is commanding repentance. God is also granting repentance, but He's commanding it through His messenger. What's interesting about the text is God could have used an angel had He wanted to, but God ordained the preaching through a man to be used to bring the Gentiles to repentance. That hasn't changed. He's still using you and me to do this very work. It's part of His ordained sovereign plan. It says, and He told us, how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. Then it says, not the angel, notice, but Peter will declare to you a message. Now, wait a minute. He already had a special sent messenger, an angel. That's what angelos means. 
That's the word actually in Mark's gospel there. When we read the messenger, it means angelos, angel. But here he's talking about a supernatural being who doesn't have a corpus, doesn't have a body, this angel. But the angel didn't, didn't bring the revelation. He said, you need a man. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. And all your household, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on him just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. means immersed into Christ by the Spirit's supernatural work. If then God gave, notice this, God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, that is the Holy Spirit, when, he, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Then verse 18, notice, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, what's it say? God. God has granted repentance that leads to eternal life or leads to life. God is the grantor of repentance. Yet at the same time, the responsibility was Peter to preach repentance to the Gentiles. That's what we see happening here. And there is a radical transformation as a result of the preaching of God's Word. That's That's what repentance represents. It represents or indicates a radical change of our being. A complete about face, if you will. Look at 2 Corinthians 7. In verse 8, the Apostle Paul writing here about confronting the sin that was going on in Corinth and how he came in there and he preached to them and how his preaching affected them. You can see it was very effectual, very powerful, and it was very merciful. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved unto or into repenting. The message was effectual. It was exposing. It was clearing the way. It was causing them to respond to God's revelation about their sinful condition. It caused them to grieve into repentance. For you felt a godly grief. Notice that. There's a difference between sorrow of getting caught, and there's a difference between that and actually having godly sorrow. You felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. In other words, when you were confronted with us or by this message, you actually benefited. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief produces death. This is the kind of, this is the kind of repentance, this godly grief produced a repentance that actually caused them to turn in faith to the Savior. The kind of worldly grief he's talking about there is the kind that when an unbeliever is caught in their sin and they have to face the penalty for it, they hate it for a while and it makes them sad because they've lost something that they wanted and so they have to do what the law says and they obey it for a while and they, they cut the path back to that sin as soon as possible. But the kind of sin or the kind of sorrow he's talking about here for the believer is it produces a godly grief, a mourning over our sin. We want to turn away and shun it completely. We want to make an about face. And again, if there is no repentance of our sins, if there is no desire for this godly sorrow, there is no evidence that you have received forgiveness. Because 
Repentance is a complete change from the inside out. It's actually beautifully illustrated in baptism, in water baptism. Baptizo means to immerse. And that word, baptizo, comes from the garment dyeing business, where they would take a white cloth and immerse it into purple dye, pull it out completely changed. That's what repentance is a picture of. We come in filthy, placed into Christ in His blood, come out pure and white. A heart that's immersed or baptized into repentance is transformed like a white garment, immersed into dye. It goes in one color and comes out another. John's baptism represented that kind of transformation. It represented repentance of self-righteousness, trusting in self, trusting in human works, human effort, salvation. And it also illustrated faith or turning to God's promises that are found in the Messiah's accomplished work. Therefore, John's baptism was a prototype of believer's baptism. Baptism, scripturally, is always for forgiven repenters. Biblical baptism always follows faith, repentance, and confession of sin. Here's how one theologian put it. Let me read this quote from a theologian from the 16th century. It's a foolish mistake, however, into which some people have been led of supposing that John's baptism was different from ours. He's meaning that um, this baptism John was preaching follows God's work of conversion. And he goes on to say further, In like manner, if we were inquiring at the present day, what part belongs to us and what part belongs to Christ in baptism, we must acknowledge that Christ alone performs what baptism figuratively represents and that we have nothing beyond the bare administration of the sign. That theologian was John Calvin, the champion of salvation by grace, not works. He's saying it would be foolish to think that this kind of picture that John painted is any different than what we do in our baptism. We are representing the same thing. There has been granted faith, repentance, and as a result, there is confession or transformation of the life. That doesn't happen because of works. It doesn't happen because of a ritual. The ritual symbolizes what happened internally. It symbolizes it externally. It testifies. And that's what he's calling for in Mark's gospel. When Mark's saying that John was preaching to Israel, he's calling for them to make a distinction that they have been changed from the corrupt Judaistic, Judaistic system that they were living in. Go with me back to Mark 1.4. And 1.4b is kind of the, I guess you could say the, the naughty text, K-N-O-T-T-Y. In 1.4b, Mark states that John's baptism, if you understand this, this is what I want you to get today, I think, if I can pass anything on to you, would be this. John's baptism was performed as a result of forgiveness of sins. You need to keep that in your mind. What John's doing here is not undermining every bit of God's progressive revelation, saying that salvation is by a work, salvation is by a ritual. That would be contradictory to God's very revelation throughout all Scripture. He's saying that this baptism was performed as a result or because of forgiveness of sins. Because forgiveness has come, baptism is a sign of what's happened internally. It will be displayed externally. Acts 2.38 says the same thing. Look what that, look what that text says here. Peter said to them in Acts 2.38... 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now there, again, baptism here is he's stating this as a visible seal of the remission of our sins, that we have been forgiven, that we have had our sins remitted, taken away. In every case that you find this, biblical forgiveness is linked to repentance, not a work, not baptism. In 4b, what John's saying in Mark there tells us that John was... Let me read the text to you in 4b. It says, he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for... You see the word for? That's the Greek word eis, E-I-S. Context determines how we use that word. It could be translated... Proclaiming a baptism of repentance as a result of or because of the forgiveness of sins. It's kind of like saying this. Jesse James is wanted for murder. That's not an advertisement. He's wanted as a result of murder. That's why he's wanted. We're not wanting him to go murder. Jesse James is wanted for murder as a result of it. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, as a result of this forgiveness you have received, you need to show it externally through your repentance and through this immersion, this transformation that's marked out in baptism. The word ice is important here in this context. It means that basically in the context, he's saying, be baptized as a result of the forgiveness of sins. That command still stands today for all of you and me. Be Obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. If He has forgiven you, you He has marked you out, He has made a path through your heart, He has straightened out the crooked. As a result of His forgiveness, be obedient to Jesus. Understand, water baptism did not and does not wash away sin. It's only a symbol of an inward transformation. Only the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, can wash away our sins. Baptism, get this, is an expression of what has transpired within us by the grace of God. Baptism does not lead to repentance or salvation or forgiveness. Repentance leads to baptism. Baptism illustrates that you have been forgiven. It illustrates that your sins have been washed away, not by what you did, but by faith in what Jesus Christ did, God's anointed Messiah and Savior. Baptism signifies that salvation comes by faith in God's gift, not religion, not human effort, not rituals, not formulas, not baptismal regeneration, which is the idea that you get baptized to be saved, and not because of decisional regeneration, where people tell you to walk up here in front and I'll declare to you that you're saved because you made a decision. It's not because of your formula. It's not because of your act is a sovereign act of God that's been granted to you. And as a response to that, you're obedient to His monergistic work of regeneration. Turn with me to John's Gospel. John 1 shows us that it is not a religious or human effort that saves us, but it is. This baptism signifies that we are saved solely on the basis of Christ's work alone, by faith in His grace. John 1 in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all men or that all might believe through him. 
He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But notice this, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Our salvation is based on the will of God, the work of His Son. Not our will, not our lineage, not our rituals, but solely based on the finished work of God's Son and God's sovereign mercy and grace. Biblical forgiveness means that our sins have been remitted, and we display that in our baptism. The rite of baptism couldn't remit our sins, it couldn't remove our sins. That symbol is important, but only God could actually remove the stain of sin by sending His Son to take our place, by covering us in His righteousness, His blood-soaked cloak of righteousness. Not a ritual, not a work. Look with me at Leviticus 17. To remove sin, blood had to be shed, according to Scripture. In Leviticus 17.11, it says... For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for, or for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. This is the ritual of blood sacrifice. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Bloodletting. We have, we have sinned against God. We have sinned against our Creator. And it would require our death as a result of our disobedience. But instead of us shedding our blood, which we could not atone because our blood is polluted by our sin, it, He sent someone to shed His blood for us. And John the baptizer tells us that it was the Messiah Himself that would shed His own blood to remove and remit, take away our sin. Go with me back to John's Gospel, John one twenty nine. Baptism is important to John. It's important to mark out the people of God there that he was talking to. It's important for us today. But that act does not save anyone, doesn't secure anyone, doesn't make anyone a promise that God is going to bless them because of what they have done. No, the promises come through the work of Jesus and his work, according to John one twenty nine. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and behold, this is John speaking, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How did He do that? He bled. He died. He gave His life for ours. He removed, remitted our sin by His baptism into death for us. And He was raised to newness of life. And in Him we are raised to newness of life now by faith and His work, not ours. So, without, faith, without the gift of forgiveness... From God, baptism would be absolutely meaningless. Remember, removal of our sin guilt is necessary for eternal life. But that only comes by faith in God's provision, not by our rituals, not by our traditions, but by the work of Christ alone. Now go with me back to Mark as we conclude here. In Mark 1.5, I'll conclude with a note on preaching. Again, this is God's continued gift to His people. As He's confronting them through the preaching, He's baptizing them as a result of the words that they hear. And Mark tells us something about God's ordained purpose for John's preaching here in this text, and in verse 5 in a moment. Just remember, God didn't call John 
to dialogue or converse with the people of Israel or hold a Q&A with them. He told him to preach the word, hard truth, so he would create a soft people. He would break hard hearts with this truth. And that was God's mercy to Israel. And he also, when he preached, he commanded them to respond. There was a, an immediate preaching of the word and an immediate expectation of a response to God's word in repentance and in obedience and baptism. In verse 5, we learn that powerful preaching about God's mercy compels men and women to listen and to take action. Again, that truth holds true still today. It was true for John, but it's still true today. Powerful preaching about God's mercy from God's word will compel men and women to listen. They may not be converted, but I guarantee you, if you hold forth the word of God with authority and conviction and you show them that you understand it, they will listen. God can do the work. We sleep while God works, but we are faithful to proclaim His Word and watch Him act and transform the lives of people. And that's what was happening in 1.5. People were hearing about this crazy man in the wilderness who reminded them of Elijah, this prophet-like guy out in the wilderness preaching this message with conviction, with boldness. He wouldn't take any guff from the, the, the religious leaders. And so it had an effect on the entire area. Now, this is hyperbole, by the way, so you understand this. It doesn't mean that every individual in Judea and Jerusalem were baptized and obedient and walked with John the Baptist from that point on. No, this is hyperbole. He's just simply saying people from all these regions were coming out. A lot of people from all these areas. It says, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. They weren't all doing it in the sense that every single person. Matter of fact, the only people who were baptized were confessors. They were credo-baptists, if you will. They were confessing their sin and they were being baptized Verse 5 says that people from all this area were going out to him. Understand this. They were going out through a wilderness to him. What's interesting is the parallel to the Exodus. In Egypt, the people of God were enslaved to Pharaoh because of their sin. And God sent Moses to bring them out through the wilderness to the promised land. Now Israel is enslaved to bondage to tradition and rituals and formulas. And now God sends a prophet in the wilderness saying, come out to be prepared for the one who will lead you into the promised land, the Lord Jesus. They were going out to him, and he was preaching to them about God's Messiah and God's mercy. And that drew people. His God-ordained message was confrontational, but it drew them out nonetheless. John wasn't clever. John wasn't trying to contextualize everything he said. It was quite the contrary. Himself, the way he looked, the way he lived, the way he talked, his message, his mode of ministry, everything was different than the established religious system that Israel was accustomed to. He wasn't contextualizing. He was standing out distinct from the world around him, proclaiming that God has a purpose in calling them. They need to repent and receive the one who can redeem them. Don't trust in your religion, in your past, in your traditions. He was calling Israel back to God's word and out of legalistic bondage. His God-ordained distinctions drew these people out. And the ones that were drawn there by faith and granted forgiveness and repentance, they were the ones who received this baptism after they confessed their sins. John proclaimed that Israel 
like the Gentiles, needed to cast themselves upon God for mercy. God alone could save them. God alone could prepare them. They must trust in God alone to save them. And as a result of that, they will repent and they will confess their sins, their sins of legalistic self-righteousness and disobedience. And they will be accepted into the family of faith. Not because of their works, not because their daddy was Abraham, because their father was God. And God granted them faith. Look what Matthew 3, quickly, what Matthew 3, 1 through 8 says. In those days, John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, In the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea, all about the Jordan, were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Confessing their sins, he says there. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They would not confess their sins. They would not find repentance. They would not find forgiveness. They would not find obedience and baptism, marking them out as the people of God. They would be distinct, separated, because of their unwillingness to confess their legalistic self-righteousness. Only those who confessed were baptized. Now, let me just ask you a couple of questions this morning to consider and think about. Have you today, kids, adults, have you repented and confessed your sin and turned in faith to Jesus Christ as your Lord, not just as a Savior to get you out of hell, but as the Lord and Master of your life and your destiny. If you have, let me ask you this. Have you been baptized biblically? Have you been immersed based on your forgiveness? If you haven't, you need to be obedient to Jesus, the Lord, the Master. He is the one who gave us this command. In the Great Commission, it is part of the gospel message. It is repent, believe, and be baptized based on your faith and His forgiveness in Christ. If you have done that, if you have been baptized biblically, if you have repented, if you have confessed your sins, if you've been forgiven, if you're saved, are you confessing Christ openly, boldly? Are you His messenger today? Let me tell you why you should do this with confidence and encouragement this morning. John the baptizer had the distinct privilege of announcing and identifying that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was man's Savior. Jesus was our substitutionary sacrifice, the very Lamb of God. And as a result of that, Jesus said something about John the Baptist in Matthew 11, 11. He said, Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist yet. The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Now, that's a pretty pretty astounding statement, isn't it? There is no one greater in all the Old Testament prophets than this one who was my messenger that proclaimed who I am and what I came to do. No one's greater than him, but the least, the weakest, feeblest Christian in this congregation is greater than the greatest Old Testament prophet in Scripture according to Jesus. 
The Bible says if you have repented and trusted in your Savior, you have been forgiven. And Jesus himself says you, as a result of his forgiveness, are now a greater preacher than John the Baptist. The reason you're a greater preacher than John the Baptist is because you have a greater revelation than John had. John, with a glimpse that he had of the revelation of God, of who Jesus is, he was compelled to stand in the wilderness and cry out night and day for people to repent and come to the Lord. That was the result in his own heart of this revelation. You've been given a bigger revelation, a more exhaustive revelation. How do you respond? Are you willing to be like John and stand out in this wilderness and cry out, even if you're alone? Prepare the way of the Lord. Repent. Confess your sins. Be obedient. Here's why you can do that. You have the greater message. You have the message of Jesus' sacrifice, His incarnation, His sacrifice, His death, His atoning death, His bodily resurrection. John didn't know this. John didn't see this. He didn't see the cross. He didn't see the lamb that was slain on the cross. We've seen it by the eyes of faith through the word of God, through our revelation. We have seen through the eyes of faith the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We, through the eyes of faith, know that he ascended and that he is coming back and he is reigning from heaven now. We have the greater revelation. We have the illumination of the Spirit when we were baptized into Christ by God the Holy Spirit. That illumination, that illumination causes us to be greater messengers. We have a greater message than John. Above all names, 
Sovereign God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for sending your son, sending him to the cross for us. And it's a weighty thing, the responsibility that we have to preach your gospel. Lord, help us to be bold. Help us to be strong, that you will be glorified in everything that we say and that we do. Jesus, we ask it. Amen. 